I got to tell you, it's hard. And it, and it's a hard, truly hard balancing act because I feel that we, you know, we should move a little bit faster um, and we could move faster. But the one thing that I've been really focused on with my team and as we bring in um, new members of our team is making sure that we stay true to our core values. This is Get Shit Done, a podcast that dives into how women entrepreneurs are gaining traction and growing companies that scale generational impact. Each episode is real talk from women founders who have successfully scaled companies. You'll learn what they did to grow, how they did it, and the tools they used to get it done so you can too. To get access to more episodes of Get Shit Done, along with free traction tools, head on over to shegetshitdone.com. Welcome back to the Get Shit Done podcast, queens and comrades. I'm your host, Alex Batdorf, aka Chief Get Shit Done Officer. If you haven't yet, please make sure to rate and review this podcast. It's super simple and you're helping us a lot in spreading the word. This also helps our team show up weekly to help you get it done. So why does it matter that we keep showing up here week after week? Because did you know women own nearly half of businesses, but we only generate 4% of total revenues? That's why our motto is fuck 4%. Our goal here every week is to teach you the traction strategies and tactics you need to get shit done and grow on your own terms so we can scale generational impact. And today we're going to be breaking down how my girl, Salisa Barian, founder of COI Energy, was able to scale a multi-million dollar energy company in just six years and raised millions of dollars. So here's what you're going to learn today from Salisa. How mastering partnerships early on was critical to their growth. This is a major traction strategy that nearly all of the people we've interviewed on this podcast have mentioned. So partnerships are key, y'all. So she's going to walk you through how you need to position a partnership in each conversation that makes it clear what value they will get because not every partner can be treated equally. That's right. You probably can't do the same pitch to a partner that you'll do to another. So one may care about one aspect of your offering while another cares about something completely different. It's learning how to decipher between the two and how to be clear about that value to your direct audience that she's going to walk you through today. So Lisa's also going to break down how customer delight is one of the driving forces of her business model, as well as how she has achieved a zero percent Let me say that again, 0% churn rate. Basically, once she gets customers, they ain't going nowhere, boo. And as we've said before, good companies acquire customers. Great companies keep them. And finally, you'll learn how she raised $3 million from investors and almost brought on the wrong type of investors who were trying to take over her business, them scoundrels. But by having the right people in her corner, it prevented her from making a fatal mistake. And before we get started, if you want our weekly traction briefings where we break down how to use these strategies with the tools and templates that you won't get in the audio, head on over to shegetshitdone.com slash join so we can slide up in your inbox weekly to help you get shit done. 
And without further ado, Queen Salisa Berrien. Salisa, welcome to Get Shit Done. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. Happy to be here. She has a glow on because she is in Tampa. She left New York as she should have because we don't understand it is spring yet. I mean, it is, but it's just not warm spring yet. It's trying. It's really trying. So I'm just taking in all of her glow right now. Yeah, it's like, I think I can. I think I can. That's what the weather's saying. I think I can. <laughs> it's And it's so like mixed personality because one week I'll be like, oh, it's finally spring. And I'm just like, okay, the memo obviously got lost. But we're excited she's here to talk about her business and all the incredible work she's been doing. But as always, we like to take it back a little bit, give a little bit of context. So tell us, what were you doing before you started COI Energy? Yeah, so I've been working in the energy industry my entire career. So I was working at another startup before starting COI, actually a startup that was out of Seattle. Yes, and it was a, a SaaS solution. Called Seattle. Yeah, yeah. And it was helping like utilities be able to target their mass market customers with online energy audits and things like that. All on the energy efficiency side, always focused on really driving efficiency. I love that. So before you got into, like, what got you into energy? Because something that is really fascinating to me when we talk about getting more women into, let's say, fintech energy, these are typically spaces that get a lot of funding because they tend to be more capital intensive. And so when we talk about the funding conversation, who's getting funding, a lot of it has to go back to STEM. And that's not necessarily a startup issue. It's a societal, what are we teaching girls versus boys issue? So that's why I'm always fascinated how women like you got into spaces that are predominantly male. So how did you even decide you would go into the energy space? Because it, it's a great it's a great space to get into. And for someone who's raised money, which we'll get into later, um, it's a good bet because you're going to get a lot of money if you're, you're able to pull it off. That's right. Well, the story is not the story that you're thinking I'm going to tell. Like, it's not this, like, glitz and glamour. It actually starts off with my lived experience. So I grew up in Bethlehem, Allentown, Pennsylvania, and my parents really um, couldn't afford to pay the energy bill every month. So part of our uh, lived experience where they had to choose between um, paying the electric bill or buying food or paying for medicine. We were a family of seven. And so I remember being in middle school and high school and being in the dark and having like friends come over and make fun of you uh, when they go to school and tell everybody else about like, oh my God, at the time they called me Lisa. Lisa, you know, they don't have any power. They got candles, you know, kerosene heaters with pots on it to keep, you know, the, the space warm. And I just remember during that time, it, I, it, it made me feel not so good. I, I felt like my dignity was taken away. And uh, when the utility company would come back and um, reconnect our power when my parents were able to pay the bill, it was like, it felt like this heavy load was lifted off of me and I got my life back again and like this joy and being able like to feel more confident. And so for me, I always had this thing that I wanted to be a hero, like these utility people that came and reconnected our power. They were heroes to me because during that time, it was like, Having the power on made me feel like I belonged. It made me feel like I was a part. It made me feel like I can go out and I can conquer anything. But without the power, 
I felt defeated. And so I wanted to be a part of the solution. So when I went on to college, I, my first internship, I did it at a, a utility company, Allegheny Power. It's so interesting to me how, like, what is the hero in all of our stories? Because I, I, it, it always brings me back to when any type of career, you are someone's hero, whether you're the male person, whether you're the garbage person, a lot of these careers that do not get enough acknowledgement. And I love that these people that were in the utility companies were because how often are they spoken down to? <laughs> it's exactly. it's amazing that that was how you interpreted it in your head as a kid. And it also reminded me of growing up, I loved the movie Crooklyn. I used to watch it over and over. Spike Lee joint. If you haven't watched it, go watch it. And there was this, this scene where their power got turned out and they had all the you know, the kerosene lamps, the candles, all of it. And I remember as a kid watching it, I'm like, ooh, that sounds, seems like camping because growing up, my family and I went camping. And of course, as for a kid, you know, if that happens often, it can be traumatic. But it also, you know, it when that happened to us when I was a kid, you know, it also felt very intimate with my family. So it's so interesting how our brains can interpret it so differently. So I love That's that that, that was your hero and then what you're doing now with it. So you already hinted to this already, but tell us what problem is COI solving for? Yeah, so we're basically helping to eradicate energy waste in buildings. So we work with businesses and then we're repurposing that waste for good. So to help balance the electric grid, to prevent blackouts, <laughs> and also to provide marginalized communities um, with equitable access to clean energy resources. And so like for families that are like my family, they don't have to be out of the, the equation for this clean energy uh, transition. They can be a part of this and having their infrastructure and their access at the same level as anybody, regardless of their socioeconomic status. Love that. Love that. So you have the utility companies, the people in them, they're the heroes now. We're making sure that we're making energy equitable because that's so real, so real. I used to live on the south side of Chicago, so totally understand that. And what I love about your story is not only you, you remind me of like Tanya Van Court, who's in the fintech space as a black woman in a very male, very white or and or Asian space. Tanya's my girl. Yes, Tanya. <laughs> we interviewed her this week, girl. Oh, so y'all will be, you'll, you'll, when we release these, they won't hear this until, you know, weeks out or maybe a month out. But I, I loved when I thought of both of you and having this conversation within a few days of each other. Um, I love that you're both not only women, black women in spaces that are typically predominantly a very certain way, and there's usually no women. And you started this company six years. It's now a multi-million dollar business. You've raised $3 million in capital in a very capital intensive space. But you broke down a few different things that you did well. So I want to go through those. And the first is partnerships. We hear this over and over. If you're a get shit done queen or comrade, that's an OG. You hear this from an acquisition perspective early on. And in general, partnerships are so key because it allows you to acquire many at once versus one on one by one. And so can you take us back to when you first started? Because, you know, now I'm sure your your partnerships operate a little differently. But take us back to when you first started partnerships. What was the strategy? How did you even approach it? Yeah, so coming from a utility background, 
I knew that if I had utilities as my partners, I can get a large grab of business customers and I wouldn't have to put up a lot of effort into it. And starting out as a, a solo founder and trying to build a team and trying to like show that we have this product market fit, I needed to have a partnership in place that was going to help me get these customers on board quicker. And so I started off with utilities. And so I first sold my solution to a utility in Florida. And with that, it was like you start off with a hundred business customers. And so then I implemented with those business customers. And then from there, it was like, do what you say you're going to do. And so with the, the first partnership with the utility, they were over delighted even till this day with what we have been able to deliver for them. And so it's like, do what you say you're going to do and do it well. I mean, focus on customer delight at every stage of the engagement. Every quarter you have to t um, um, go around, just make sure you're delighting in that process. And we did that. And then that led to other partnerships. Because if you fail with your first partnership, the word gets out. This is a small mm -hmm. community. Everybody talks. Mm -hmm. and so for us, it was really important that we had a maniacal focus on customer delight. And if we didn't do that, if we didn't do that well, we wouldn't have been able to progress to our next level. Mm, I love this. So I even want to go back to, because you've been in energy prior to this, but I can even think of when you mentioned it, my first time ever pitching for like a, a business development deal. And so when you approached that first company, what was that like for you? Like, A, let's, let's start with like, what was going through your head? And then I want to go through, you know, how did you approach, even though you had the experience, because it doesn't matter, you can have all the experience in the world and you still get frazzled, you still get those butterflies. But for the audience listening, sometimes they can listen to the like women like you and be like, wow, like she did it, you know, but like, how do I get started? Cause I'm like scared, you know? So what was going through your mind before you made, you know, when you were trying to approach that first partner, good and bad. Yep. Yep. So real talk. So we're getting down to the real talk. Only first. girl, only yep. girl. <laughs> That's <laughs> the only type of talk we do. Exactly. Exactly. So first thing is I'm an introvert. I don't even really like being out there talking to people. And so as an engineer, I have to, I had to learn how to like get in these spaces and get comfortable with that. So just think about Salisa, the introvert that's an engineer. And I'm always like, my whole career has been focused on just solving problems. So I just show up in the world just to solve a problem. And now I'm going out and I'm trying to do something different. I'm, I'm creating something and at the same time, I'm trying to sell what I'm creating. So this utility, I reached out to talk to them about, I, I had a, a person that referred me to someone. So I started off. So beginning, it's all about who you know. It's all about your network. And so my network, they introduced, they, they connected me with the team, the program team, and they were very clear on what they needed. So... When they said what they needed, I was like, oh, yeah, we don't do that. I didn't say I could solve that problem. Yes. And, and I was thinking like the engineer, I'm like, okay, so we don't do that, but this is what we do. 
And so they were looking at having going from a one-way communication to two-way. And I says, we do two-way communication, but this, this, and this come with it. They didn't want this, this, and this. So my CTO, he, he kind of like was nudging me and he's like, Salisa, we can do that. And I'm like, we don't, we don't do that. We do this. He's like, yeah, we can do that. That's just one day. They, they're just looking for one leg of what we do. And so I had to step back from the engineer person that I am looking at the full picture and trying to bring them a full solution to focusing on the problem they felt they had mm. and solving that problem. And so I ended up saying, you know, I followed up with them. So it wasn't even on the same call. I followed up and I says, Hey, by the way, I just wanted to get back to you. You know, I'd mentioned like, we don't do this. However, we do do it, but we have, you know, all these different things are included. And I said, if you want us to just break that portion out, we can. But I got to tell you, it was a CTO giving me that push to make me go back to say, yeah, we can do it. Just give them that portion. And so mm. we did. And so when it got to the proposal time, they said, well, Felisa, could you do us a favor? Because we get all these proposals from all these different companies and they don't listen to what we ask for. So we're very clear. We want this. If you want to talk about all the other things you do, you can do that, but just put it in the appendix. Don't have that as a first part of your proposal because it's going to throw our team off and we're not going to be able to make a decision on it. So I followed their lead. And so they, they were very clear on how I needed to approach my proposal. And they were like, you know, we tell everybody this, but everyone doesn't listen. They still want to just sell the way they want to sell. And so even when I started COI Energy, the reason why I started the company was because I was working at previous companies that were just trying to sell their widget. And for me, it's like, if I can't solve your problem, I'm going to tell you. And my thing is, if I'm being transparent and I'm being open with you, when I can do something for you, you will always come back to me. And that's what's really helped me throughout my entire career is you really focus on developing these sustainable relationships. And so being honest, Having integrity is like number one. And so for me, when I came back and I said, okay, we'll do it. And this is kind of, you know, how we do it. I, I was looking at this full picture, but I get what you're saying. This is a component of what we do. I gave that to them and they came back and they were like, this is awesome. We're going to sign on. So it was like six months. Now, if you know anything about utilities, it takes 12 to 18 months before you get a contract. And so we were wow. like, this is awesome. Six months. They said, yes. Well, it ended up taking another six months before they actually signed. So it's still, we got back to 12 months, but it was, I think it was, you know, really trans transformational for them to even make a decision in six months. And that's validating, especially for a company that has raised capital. You, we get a lot of founders who are at the pre-seed that are asking questions. What do these investors care about? And, you know, one of our growth allies in residence, Chase Emanuel, who's in the VC space is like, sometimes it's just showing that you have one pilot that's really engaged and has all of these different people they're going to bring with it or a hundred really solid customers that keep coming back. Right. Instead of like a ton, you don't need to show thousands of people just signed up out of nowhere, but then nothing's really happening with them. Right. And what I loved about this story, and it's so true is that, you know, this is with any type of pitching, whether it's to investors or with business development, is that we always advise founders, have your skeleton for like the base. 
and know that whoever you're pitching to, there are going to be things that they care about more and you need to lean into that. You don't need to show them how everything is made. You don't need to tell them all the other features that they probably don't even care about. It's like for them, they said, no, no, no. We only, the fact that they even told you that is powerful, but this is what we care about. And then you had some on your team saying, we can do that. But as founders, it's, it's kind of feels like in the moment dismantling your baby. And it's like, no, all of the things are important. What do you mean? And Christy Zolke, founder of Knowledge Ham, she said the same thing. They were like the Google for data for comp- big Fortune 500 companies uh, a few years ago. And before they understood the power of that, she had to start with where they were at. They were like, oh, we only just want this feature. And she was like, that's so basic in her head. But she's like, you know what? Let me bring them along. So I love that that was your experience. So as partnerships have developed over time, what do you think is the thing that you do exceptionally well now that you've learned on this journey when it comes to nailing partnerships? I believe the best part of what my team and I do is really focus on the relational part of the partnership. You can say you have partners, but if your partners don't feel like partners, they're not partners. But for me, for partnerships, like what I feel we really do well is the relationship part. And I mean, being relational means a lot to your potential partners. It's not just a transaction. It's about like going on this journey and solving these big problems together. And it's not me against you. It's about us really, you know, conquering this big, humongous thing. And we achieve it because we work in concert with each other. So when I start off with like looking at partnerships, it starts off with the relationships I currently have. So they trust me because I've been able to deliver on what I said I would do for them. And then they start to make introductions to others. And that's how we've been able to build out on our partnerships. Everything came from a relationship. And then that relationship introduced me to new relationships. And this is everything, whether it is sales, business development, which is under the sales umbrella. And then also, I mean, investors too. All of it is relationships and not waiting until you need something. And even small things like remembering birthdays. I put birthdays on my calendar when I know a birthday is coming. And thank goodness for things like LinkedIn, because I'm like, oh, let me not even just like send them a DM. I'm sending them, if I have their number, I'm sending them a text or I'm sending them an email if I don't. And I remember reading, I forget the name of it, years ago, this book and saying how so many high-level executives, actually people think they might be bothering them. So a lot of people don't even reach out to them when things like birthday, little things happen, like remembering, oh, I heard your daughter's quinceanera was whatever. How did that go? Like that goes such a long way instead of, like you said, non-transactional. Like I actually care about you as a human because it's not, we call it business to business, you know, deals. It's people to people deals that you just happen to be at businesses. So love yeah, that. Like, love right. that. So you also mentioned a huge part of what you all have done well and why you're in your position that you're in is customer delight. So you already talked about that. So can you walk us through what that looks like in action? Yeah. So <laughs> starting out, and, and this takes me back to the beginning of my career. So I worked at the utility Pennsylvania Power Light. They go by PPL now. And every new 
person that came along their business development team, they had to go through consultative selling. And, they, and it, the focus was on being the, the champion for your customers, not like, you know, trying to sell whatever the widget is we have to sell. And I thought that was really, you know, different for a utility to have that mindset to say, you are, we, we're, we, we're bringing you on to be that customer advocate. And so that's how I learned like straight out of college. It was like all about making sure whatever you do, it's in the best interest of the customer. And if what you are offering doesn't meet the customer's needs, let them know. Be upfront mm -hmm. and honest. And then, you know, you even go that extra mile and say, here's another company that probably can meet your needs. And it may be your competitor, but at least you're helping the customer solve a problem. And so I've taken that approach since the beginning of my career, because that's how I was taught. And I've taken that, you know, all the way to this point, even with my team. And saying, whenever we do something, let's start off with like, let's be very transparent with the customer. Let them know what you can and what you can't do. Understand what their problems are. Try to solve that problem. Don't try to go around their problem. Focus on what that problem is. And, and, and if we can solve it, solve it. If we can't, let's refer it out to somebody that can get it done for them. And so I have situations going on like that right now with a major customer that I definitely would love to have done all parts of the deal, but there's a piece that doesn't, but it's not in our wheelhouse. And so I brought in folks that are potential competitors of mine to, to say, hey, you know, could you do this piece? And so the, the, the customer that I have was really happy and was actually like, wow, like we really appreciate you going that extra mile. You didn't have to do it, you know, to help us go. And, they, and then they refer, they, they end up saying like, we had other folks, we asked the same thing. And it's been weeks and we haven't gotten a response. And you were the one that kind of came back to us, even though you couldn't do it, you told us, you know, how we could still get it done. And mm, that's, yes. what's, that's what's really gotten us to this point. I mean, if we did not have this maniacal focus on customer delight, I got to tell you, we wouldn't be where we're at. We wouldn't be at zero percent churn. I mean, a lot of companies can't, you know, boast about that. And we, I love this because... There's so much smoke and mirrors in the business space, especially startups, and around saturate, just get to the sale, just get that customer, and it's acquire, acquire, but no one's really talking about retain, retain, and how do you retain them is at integrity, transparency, and you need to deliver value, period, point blank. And it's always so fascinating to me that we hold that mindset of such scarcity in startups of like, just get it by any means necessary. And it's like, you just spent all this time and that person's probably not going to say, cause you lied. You lied and said that you can offer something that you couldn't. And we do this very often as well. Like founders that come to them, us, us will say whether we can serve you or not. And actually, if we can't, here are some folks that we really truly admire that we think you should go to for what you're looking for. But I get it when you are in the early stages for folks that are trying to build and they're like, God, we needed that sale, you know, and it's so easy to feel that way. And sometimes you make some mistakes. We've done this where it's like, wow, actually, we'll never make that mistake again because that founder didn't align with our ethos. And that's on me. That's on our team, right? So what allows you to stay clear on that so you can continue to offer that delight instead of getting 
wrapped up in the numbers game of just acquire, acquire, acquire. I got to tell you, it's hard. And it, and it's a hard, truly hard balancing act because I feel that we, you know, we should move a little bit faster um, and we could move faster. But the one thing that I've been really focused on with my team and as we bring in um, new members of our team is making sure that we stay true to our core values. I had a candidate that had a book of business that we were looking at bringing on as a business development manager, new to market, was like had all these connections, but during the interview made a comment that they'll do anything to get a deal. Mm, and that, that just didn't resonate with me. <laughs> I was like, no, we can't have somebody because what I don't want is we bring people on and they really destroy the core of who we are. And Facts. so we want to run really fast and we get all these, these deals. And like you say, you have dissatisfied customers, you get a bad name in the market, and, but you got all the deals. Or do you want to um, still try to move fast, make sure you get the right people on your team. And that's, I mean, as you probably know, with the great resignation and everything, it's hard trying to like go through and making sure you got the right folks that align with your core values. And like we use this Rubens, like zero to four, like zero, they shouldn't even get an interview. Four, it's like, you know what, I'll put my career on a line because I think this person is for our company. They really align with our values. And for me, it's really important to get, you know, to those fours. Mm -hmm. Those fours will make your company sustainable. You know, when you're dealing with the zeros and the ones just because like this person has a good book of business, but you know, their integrity, you know, you know, their, their personal values just don't align. And I'm like, no, I'm good. I pass on that. Yes. And this is something that you can, we do this for like people we're considering having on our team. We do this for founders we're considering having a part of our programs. Our community is we have a scorecard. And our team knows here are the metrics that help us decide, are they one through 10? And anything that is below a six, we know we're not even touching it. And we also know to say, well, here's why. So we can reach out to them and say, well, this is what we we think would be best for you at this time, but we can't offer that, right? And so I love that you can do this rubric. And, and for any founders listening, like you don't have to do anything fancy, literally a quick spreadsheet and have understanding and transparency amongst your team of why are we scoring it this way? So then you can take the, I know with team members, this is really hard when you're hiring sometimes. Ooh, that person's so great. But then when you look at the rubric and the number, you're like, oh, actually that candidate scored higher. We exactly. take the emotion out of it. So I'm so happy you mentioned that. So I truly believe that, you know, good companies can acquire customers, but great companies keep them. And you've done that well. You have zero churn, which is insane. Amazing. That is a very great company because of you delivering on your promises. And you already talked about this. It's like a lot of the integrity, making sure you're delighting customers. But what else do you, would you say that you all do really well that gets you to zero churn that other founders can incorporate into their businesses? So deliver on the value that you say you have. <laughs> So our technology platform, we work with businesses and what we say to every business that comes on our platform, they're going to save up to 30% off of their energy bill. They're going to reduce their carbon footprint and ensure that that truly happens. 
And so every customer that comes on our platform, we say, you don't pay us until we prove that we're able to deliver for you. So if we don't deliver savings for you, nothing out of pocket for you. So no, no loss on your side. And customers like who could say no to that? It's like, oh, so they're so confident that they're going to deliver this value that they're able to put their neck on the line and say, hey, you don't have to pay anything up front. And, and that's been true. And these customers are the ones that are referring us to other customers. Because it's like, wow. And, and I'll tell you a quick story. So I had one um, company, we healthcare is one of our uh, target verticals. And so it was really hard, especially um, when the pandemic happens where, you know, you really couldn't go inside facilities. But this one customer at the early stages of the pandemic, I, I met with them and I called several times, you know how you do cold calling, wouldn't get them on the phone. And then I was like, I'm just going to show up to the location. So I show up and he happened to be walking past the front desk at the time. So the receptionist says, Salise is here. You know, she, you know, left you a message and you were going to follow up with her. So the receptionist is talking to him right in front of me. He ends up saying, okay, you know, give me one minute and you can come to my office. So I go back to his office and he's like, oh, what are you trying to sell me? And I'm like, I'm really not trying to sell you anything. This is really what I'm looking for is your support with supporting the electric grid and at the same time help, helping these marginalized communities by you becoming a little bit more energy efficient. When you're efficient, your flexibility actually helps balance the electric grid. And it, in a portion of the savings that we do with you guys, we give a portion of that to our communities that need basic help with like paying their electric bill or, or getting access to community solar or what have you. And the guy says, mm, that doesn't sound right. He says, you know, why isn't anyone doing this? And I said, well, do you, is, is your computer on? He's like, yeah. I says, could you go to your computer and just type this in? And so I told him to go to the website where we're actually on the utilities website. And I showed him the program and he's like, wow, this is too good to be true. He says, so why isn't everyone doing it? I says, why weren't you doing it? Like mm. you thought, you thought I was coming in with some kind of scheme, right? And he says, yeah, we get so much of that. He says, that's good. That's such a good point, Salisa. He's like, everyone should be doing this. It makes sense. It doesn't only just make sense for our business because we're going to save, but it makes sense for the environment and it, it, it makes sense for the communities that we serve. And he's like, everyone. And this guy has been my biggest champion. He has referred us. So one of our largest partnerships we got, but it happened because I had to get him to sit down at his computer and type something in. And so the education process, that's what is really needed in this ecosystem is really educating customers on everything that we do within our homes and our businesses. It makes a difference with the electric utility. It makes a difference with reliability of the grid. It makes a difference with, you know, our costs to, to serve. It also makes a difference with those other communities that are around us that can't even afford to pay a bill. And a lot of people don't recognize how all that's interconnected. So once you start educating people, they're like, this is like the right thing to do. And there's really no risk to them. Mm, I love this. We, we keep hearing ongoing with folks early on. It's that education piece, which you can do through content, which you can do through the selling process in general when you're building those relationships. But another thing that I think is really important here that keeps 
coming up through as a thread. And what you keep saying is integrity. Integrity to me is like the number one thing in business. The number one. Like if you say you do something, do it. And if you don't, walk away. Do not try to just get someone to like buy. And like, for example, when let's say for partners that want to partner with us, this is what we say we do and we don't do. We're not going to say we're going to deliver you all these thousands of, of founders out of nowhere. No, we have really good quality. Same with founders. It's like they come to us and they're like, well, what, what am I going to get? Like, tell me the exact numbers I'm going to get after the end. I'm like, I, I'm not going to tell you that. And any any program that tells you that, run for the hills. <laughs> run. What I can tell you is, A, there's no silver bullet, but B, here's how we support you. And if you feel like you need that support, then we're the best place for you. If that is not what you need, tell me what you actually need so we can send you to the right place. Exactly. Integrity is everything. And I love that that's a common thread in everything you do. So there's like, I'm not even surprised that you're in this position. So you also have raised funding. You've raised 3 million to date. So I want to understand, because I think the why is so important. Everyone likes to go to the how, and I'm like, no, because most people aren't even going to get to the how because most of y'all aren't going to raise capital because that's one way of scaling. That's not the only way. So tell us, why did you decide to raise and what type of capital did you raise? So to be honest with you, just starting out the gate, I went to a bank and I didn't have this big idea that like the company was going to be this huge thing. I really had a, a small kind of mindset around, oh, you know, this is going to be a five to $10 million company. And if you know my background, like first generation college student, never knew anything about venture capital. So all this is new to me. I just knew like what I was creating was a solution and it was going to fill a gap. Five to $10 million I thought was success. And so for me, it was like just starting there and, you know, and continuing on that road, it, you know, I would have, I would have been fine. Went to the bank. Nope. We don't invest. In, <laughs> we don't give loans, you know, for software companies. I'm like, what? They ain't investing in nothing. <laughs> I told you like, you could see like my mindset. I knew nothing about this. I was like, go to a bank. <laughs> then after I go to the bank, then all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, they're like, Hey, Salisa, because I was in an incubator. I started the company in Tampa. So I was in an incubator um, and they said, hey, here's some angel groups. So then I started talking to the angel groups and they were like, oh, you need to show traction. I'm like, okay, so this person, they just had an idea and they got investment, but I have to show traction. So that's when you get into like these dynamics of female, black, you know, mm -hmm. differences. Someone can get an investment just from writing something on the back of a napkin. Whereas for me, it was like, you need attraction. And then once I closed the deal with the first utility, I had traction and, it, and then there was a different story of what I needed. So I ended up having the bootstrap with my own personal funds for the first two and a half years. So over $300,000 of my own money I put into the company. And that got us to our first investment through Morgan Stanley. And so we submitted an application to be a part of uh, the Multicultural Innovation Lab. And literally that submitting that application changed the trajectory of the company. And it also changed 
my life and my mindset because I didn't know about this whole other world of venture capital. And so it gave me this bigger exposure. That's when we moved to New York. So in 2018, and so 2018 on, I just started getting exposed to all these other different vehicles of really, you know, trying to help grow your company. And Morgan Stanley really was the anchor in giving me that exposure. So I raised my pre-seed round that year. Um, I got a term sheet, I got to tell you, I got a term sheet while I was in the lab, Morgan Stanley's lab, within 30 to 45 days of me saying I was fundraising. Yes, queen. And people yes. are like, That's, they're like, that doesn't happen, Salisa. And I was only- It does like, when oh. you have traction. Yes, it does. <laughs> two million, I was raising it and the term sheet was for two million. But it turned out the term sheet was not good. It was like, they basically, you know, thought there was like, this is a great idea. They're like, Salisa, you know, we're going to give you the money so you can focus on your business. And we're going to do all the financial stuff and run the operations in the background. You don't have to worry about it. And it sounded, it was too good to be true. It wasn't true mm. because they were basically going to take over my whole company. Yep. Yep. But the good thing is I was a part of the multicultural innovation lab with Morgan Stanley. I had an opportunity to share this with Carla Harris and with Alice Villa. Queen, yes. They, exactly. Then they had like my mentor through Morgan Stanley P. They all looked at it and they were like, are these folks on crack? And they were like, well, Salisa, let us give them a call. So my um, mentor, Pete, he's like, I'll give them a call because maybe like we're missing something. And uh, he gave them a call. He's like, no, not missing anything. They actually thought that you were dumb enough to take this deal. Mm. And so I turned it down. They were so upset that I turned it down. Of course. Because you know, they knew like, you know, what my financial situation was. And they were like, you need the money. Like, why aren't you taking it? And I was like, I'd rather go out of business on my own terms. Jesus. Again, integrity to me is everything. And I have a, like, a blacklist. Not even black, because I think black is very positive. A shit list, rather, of founders who tell me when there's investors or folks in this ecosystem that do something wrong, and it's very internal. And so we have closed-door conversations when a founder comes up, and we're like, who was it? Because best believe, we make sure our tribe is supported and they know who to avoid. So please try it. I'm so happy you had them in your corner. So that yeah, is that, amazing. The family team has been amazing. I mean, it's, you know, and then SAP, you know, I'm a part of the SAP that I, I found, which I know that's how we initially got connected. SAP, and, yep. Yep, Sally, Vanessa, all the, I mean, super amazing. And like really navigating you through the process and their connections. And so that's really what's helped us on our journey of fundraising is really having folks that are navigating. Now, I got to tell you, it hasn't been easy. It doesn't, even with all the introductions, it hasn't been easy. And so I ended up having to do crowdfunding. If, if you want to, you know, hear the truth, it's like just yeah. pre-pandemic, I had to go out and crowdfund because I couldn't get, you know, the checks in, you know, to continue like running the business. And so... I crowdfunded, I, I, I completed everything just before the pandemic, went live in August of the year of the pandemic. And it was like the stars aligned because I originally wasn't even going to do crowdfunding. 
And some of us go ahead and do it, not knowing a pandemic was going to happen. And then when a pandemic happened, no one really knew what was going to go on with investment in the early stages. And then all of a sudden it accelerated. So from there, mm. everything kind of picked up. So I ended up raising in parallel with the crowdfunding and also with the institutional investors. Which platform did you end up choosing? I used Republic. Republic's amazing. We love them. And it's so interesting because founders will often have questions like, does do VCs, are they okay with this? And I would say there are certain platforms they are okay with. Republic is one of the few, very few crowdfunding platforms that is VC quote unquote approved. And I see a lot of founders do complimentary raises because it's great. I think crowdfunding is great for the most important market validator and investor is customers. So I love that you did both of those because it's powerful instead of having to wait on a few groups or individuals to cut you a check. So you already talked about a couple of things and mistakes you made and were able to come back from, but what would you say is the biggest mistake you've made thus far building this company that has become one of your best lessons as a leader? Talent acquisition. Ooh, child. Yep. <laughs> I am not, I say this all the time. I literally am such a visionary leader and I, my, my, team calls a hurricane. I can be a hurricane. I can be like, okay, okay, let's go, let's go, let's go. But it's being able to, one, bring in the right people and manage those people. And this market right now is insane. It has been very humbling. So yes, tell us more. What was your experience like? Yeah. So because, you know, we had limited funds and I'm selling to like multi-billion dollar companies, like you got to show up in the world like you know, you, you're already in the game, right? And so for me, I'm hiring people that I can afford. And so there were, you know, early on, there were folks that I hired that were not good fits. So when I talk, talk to you about this rubric that we use now, <laughs> it's because of what I learned early on. Same. And, <laughs> Same. The rubric came because of all the mistakes. Exactly. So I was like, okay, it's not really about the fact that, you know, I might only have, you know, $10 to give. It's, you know, it's all about the people. And if you're, if they're passionate about, you know, what you're doing and, you know, you're providing them with equity and you're giving them, you know, a respectable uh, salary, you can get good people. And it's, you know, but before it was like, I was like just totally focused on the salary because I was running into the people that that was what was only important to them. And so I'm like, okay, I got to get this corner of people. And then I, I was getting this corner of people and they couldn't really move the needle. So even though, you know, I brought folks on, I lost runway on folks because they did not move anything forward. And so that was like one of my biggest lessons. And I'm like, I can't go down that road ever again. Mm. I can't afford to go down that road ever again. And so I had to put processes in place to ensure that we do not go down that road. Amen. Oh, my goodness. Because hiring, I mean, firing is so taxing. It is expensive. Because you also, it's all that time you spent investing and in trying to get them up and running. It's like time is the most valuable asset and you just lost it. And on, on top of that, the compensation for someone that's not going to work out. And 
We've said this before, and a lot of founders have this issue. Often, a lot of the time when we bring on new hires, 90% of them don't work out because of what we've done wrong, which is usually the lack of systems and processes in place to make sure that they are a good fit. Can you get it right 100% of the time? No, you can't. But 90% of the time when it doesn't work out, it's because it's our fault. So I'm so happy you brought that up. And our motto at Get Shit Done is fuck 4%. We say that because women own nearly half of businesses, but we make up 4% of total revenues. That's what we're here to change. And you have already done an amazing job so far, already in the multi-millions. But what are you focused on now to get your revenues to the next level? Yeah, so right now, super busy, like trying to prepare for our Series A, you know, really trying to get on the talents to take this to the next level. So when you talk about having 0% churn. If you want to even stay at the low churn rate, you got to build a scalable team that has, you know, the customer success and, you know, you have the business development, you have the product team, you have the implementers, all that stuff, you know, we're going to need in place and you can't do it with a skeleton crew. So right now we're working on just really building out our team, building out, you know, expanding our products, and then just going out there and um, telling the story. So a a part of that also is going to be in the education piece, as we mentioned earlier, is with our platform, just really being able to get out there and educate consumers, business consumers, on the value of what they do and how that impacts. And I I already see um, changes happening. So we're getting more conversations with cities you know, that are looking at implementing their, you know, their smart city initiatives and utilizing our platform. So things like that is what's top of mind for us right now is really getting folks in place so we can deliver on all these contracts that are coming up. And how can we support you and make it happen? Hey, let's just spread the word. You know, we can give our our platform is coioptimizer.com. So any um, business can go there. They can sign up. They can sign their building up. Every building qualifies to participate on a platform like this because we all can do better by operating more efficiently. Businesses waste 30% of the energy they consume. That's about $55 billion a year that's going out the window. If we operate and have visibility into how we're running our buildings, we can improve our efficiency. We will reduce our carbon footprint. And then overall, we're just going to make the the ecosystem better for all. So we're not going to just uplift one portion of the community. It's all portions of the the ecosystem in order for us to drive a climate-friendly economy that's going to help future generations live, work, play, and thrive. Thank you so much for listening to Get Shit Done. We hope you got the traction tips you need to grow your company on your own terms. If you want to learn more traction tips like these from badass women entrepreneurs weekly, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, queen, show us some love by rating and reviewing this podcast. This really helps us reach and serve more women like you in slaying their way to traction. And if you're looking for more support on your scaling journey, head on over to shegetsshitdone.com slash join, where you'll become a part of the movement of women entrepreneurs giving 4% the middle finger. Until next time, queen, I'm Alex Batdorf reminding you, you got this. Now go out there and get shit done.